Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Breakout Con 2019. Within our threatened range. <laughs> we might spit a little bit, but that's about it. You're gonna need to take a five foot step if you don't want an attack of opportunity. And I think, Tracy, like around you within your reach, it's difficult to rain. So that might, that might be <laughs> yes. why. Those are all three five jokes. <laughs> I can't imagine. Although I think fourth might have had some of that stuff too. Okay, yeah. The, the, the group I started, I, the group I, I, I ran, organized, uh, organized play for a while for fourth edition. Mm-hmm. And these two players were brand new players that hadn't played anything beforehand, other PGs, and they loved fourth edition, and we kept on playing years ago? Or something like that. I feel bummed for the people who really liked 4th edition <laughs> because it lasted like two seconds. And it's like... It's all news now. Totally the opposite direction. Oh yeah, it was forever. It went, went well. It went well. 4th was fun for what it did. Alright, are, are the mic's on. I want to double check uh, that everybody yep. is. Yeah. I'm on. How do I tell? Has mic yeah, set to yes. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. All right, Victoria. Yeah. Uh, well, welcome, everyone. Uh, you are, in case you don't know where you are right now, you're at Breakout Con, and you're you're at a panel called uh, "Let Go of the Reins." So we're we're going to be discussing um, how, you, like, you don't need to prep for hours. You don't you don't need to have a fun like to prep for hours and hours and write out every single possibility that could absolutely happen that your players might just happen to do um, to be prepared and have fun. Um, so jamming doesn't have to be daunting. It doesn't have to be scary. So we're going to look at ways um, to let go of those reins um, and let the, everyone at the table have a chance to collaborate and create the story together. So first off, who am I? I am Victoria Rogers. I am the DM of a podcast called The Broadswords. We're an all-woman D&D podcast. I have done a couple things with Wizards of the Coast. I have put together a few uh, podcasting events for them. I co-wrote um, a big 10 epi- um, episode uh, arc for them for a podcast of Waterdeep, which would, was to coincide with the Dragon Heist release. And I'm, I'm working on a couple other things with them as well. And so yeah, and here we have Tracy. 
My resume is not as long no. or impressive <laughs> as yours. <laughs> oh um, but my name is Tracy. I am one of the players on the Broadswords. I play the High Elf Bard Kila. Um, but I also GM a patron-only stream that we play, which is uh, using the Mass Effect Fate system. So I've, I have a little bit of GMing experience under my belt, but not quite as much as Victoria. Uh, oh, hey. Oh, this is actually uh, Bianca Zelda, also a member of the Broadswords. I play Tiefling Barbarian. Uh, a whole lot of fun. My resume is also much smaller than uh, between Victoria and James, uh, so that's pretty much my intro. I play a lot of games and have fun. Uh, hi, I'm James D'Amato. Uh, I run the One Shot Podcast Network. I am the host of One Shot and Campaign, and according to Twitter, I've never played a single RPG correctly. So that is <laughs> what I think a huge accomplishment. Um, I, I will note that uh, I think anything that we say up here is like stylistic advice, mm -hmm. um, which means that if you have a style that is like heavily dependent on prep and envisioning every possibility, what we're saying is not that you are wrong, simply that uh, there are other ways of doing things uh, that you might want to consider. Uh, so yeah, take everything that we say with a grain of salt. <laughs> Okay, so I have my my first question for everyone is, what is a GM? A game master. <laughs> um, Nailed it. Done. <laughs> Done. Time it. to go home, everybody. <laughs> um, no, I think uh, I mean I, obviously a game master um, is somebody who doesn't necessarily like control the players, but helps them create stories. They help them work together. Um, they are the person that helps orchestrate so much in a story. Um, you know, GM, you're very much the helmsman of the ship that you're piloting. But I think even though you're the helmsman, you're still a member of the ship. Absolutely. And that's yes. one of the important things about, one of the important distinctions is that even though you're a GM, you're still a player and you still have every right to have as much fun as all of your other players at the table. Yeah, I think one uh, thing that m might not have been called out yet is GM also acts as a arbiter of the rules. Um, they're sort of a centralized decision maker, um, you know, kind of like a mayor. Uh, they're, they're a group of people have said, well, this person will make a decision when we come to an area where there isn't cohesive agreement. Um, and GMs kind of have the authority to say, well, if this is a rule that's written in the book, but we don't want to address it on the table, we can step and move around that. Uh, so they are like other players. Uh, they just also have uh, a different angle of the way fun is presented to them. Um, I, I think like Helmsman is an interesting metaphor. Like. I, I, I always like tend to go with a director or, or even a project manager. Like Dramatic manager. Yeah, yeah. They they put they, they put information in front of players that they can react to and then they react to player choices. Um, so it's it's a, it's a the same thing. You're still playing the game, it's just from a different perspective. Let's introduce Daniel. Daniel. Yeah. Hello. Hi Daniel. Hey, sorry I'm late. Totally my fault. Uh, what can I say about myself? I'm one of the co-hosts of the Asians Represent podcast on the One Shot Network. Um, for the past 14 years, I've been working at the Royal Ontario Museum, helping teach kids history, science, and social skills using tabletop RPGs. Actually, one of my former students is in the crowd. What up? That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also a designer, and yeah. Cool. And and what is a GM to you? Like you you. I, I like I like to use the term dramatic manager. 
that game master. But I think that like everything that you said was since I ran in <laughs> has involved managing. You said project management, but I like dramatic manager because it kind of covers all games. Yeah, that, that's a that, I, that is the first time that I have heard that term, and I really like it. Yeah. And I and I don't like I don't like project manager personally because I don't think the players are a project to the GM. For Cause, sure, because project sure. implies work, and everybody's supposed to be having fun at the table. <laughs> it depends on uh, you're with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I view the GM as like a lead writer. Um, I I look at a table kind of as a writing room. Mm. Um, where everyone is a writer at that table, but the GM is the person that takes all of those ideas and makes sure that they're cohesive and ties them all together to create a cohesive story. Like an executive producer. Yeah, executive producer is another good thing because like executive producers provide the resources that uh, a production needs and also make some top level decisions to allow that production to, you know, exist. Uh, so I, I think that makes sense too. Like if you've ever been in a theater group that does not have someone in an executive production role, you know that there's a lot of miscommunication and, and things... Like, it might still happen, but it doesn't feel like things are gelling together in the same way. Which is why, you know, I think dramatic manager is very cool because you are managing in some way, even if you're playing at the same time. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so we have a definition of, of what we believe here at this table a GM is. Um, so, <laughs> um, my next question is, why do you GM? I was going to say money, but... Oh. <laughs> yeah, no, it's yeah, the it's money, money, for sure. <laughs> all uh, of the many dollars. <laughs> so many dollars. Uh -huh, um, uh -huh. No. For, for me, personally, I like GMing because it's another opportunity to... Well, you are, in a way, telling a story because even though you're managing and you're, you're telling the story together, but you're still facilitating the story as the GM. So for me, I really like creating settings that I get to collaboratively talk about with my players. And also, I really enjoy giving my players moral quandaries. Mm, yeah, you do. So, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, you all know that. So one of my favorite things as a GM, I think, is to get the chance to challenge the players and make them really think about what their characters would do. I, I really like forcing my players to be challenged, not in the sense of like a difficult enemy, but more in the sense of a difficult decision. Mm -hmm. uh, for, for me, uh, I GM because when I was a player all the time, um, a lot of it revolved around combat. And, and combat has its time and combat has its place, but it is my least favorite part of a tabletop role-playing game. Um, so I tended to tune out during combat and I focused more on the story and role-playing side of things. And that is when I tuned in and got really into it, and I responded to GMs who would respond to me when, when I presented more story-oriented stuff. Um, but I, I did find, because this was particularly, this, this was in like early, mid-90s, um, it was very combat-oriented then. Uh, so I decided to start DMing and GMing myself because I wanted to create the game that I wanted to play um, and, and give a space for people. To, to play that way because I found that there's quite a few people who wanted to play that way but we, we just
didn't have games or tables to play it that way in. So that is why I GM. I think there's some parallels that can be drawn between GMing and like, I mean, I know that they're pretty different things, but I think there are some parallels that can be drawn between GMing and writing fan fiction in the sense that <laughs> you get to create your own world and your own interpretation. You get to do things the way that you want to do. Yeah, in another setting that's already yeah. kind of created for you. Yeah, exactly. I draw, I, par- I, I'll go for <laughs> I draw parallels between like the act of role playing generally and mm-hmm. uh, uh, fan fiction a lot. So like that that certainly resonates. But I feel like you you get some of those reins as a player too. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I think one thing important thing to mention because I, I I think we understand what you mean by fan fiction. But <laughs> in the crowd, like it might come off as you saying, I want to do this one thing, and the players have to follow my fan fiction. Mm, that's true. And, and, that, and that shouldn't be the case. When you're a good GM, my rule at least, is that you should be the player's biggest fan. Yeah. You're, you're out there mm. to challenge them. They're out, you're out there to provide moral quandaries for them. You're out there to provide you know, interesting combat encounters for them if that's what they want. Right? Very but true. ultimately there for your players, and your players are ultimately there for you to help facilitate that fan fiction, but also to contribute to it. Mm-hmm. Right? And, like, and I, I want to add something a little different to, like, why do you GM? Um, yeah, I mean, when I said money earlier, that was, like, half a joke, but also, like, I am a professional GM. That's where my income comes from. But I love what I do because it's educational and it's therapeutic. Not to me, but to the people that I play with. Uh, I think I am the only person in the city right now who uses games like, like D&D um, to teach history, to teach science, to teach social skills. And GMing is not only like a really fun way to entertain yourself and your friends, but also a really great way to help people in the world. Like you, we see like teenagers and they're growing up playing video games and they're exposed to a lot in the media, more than we were when we were kids. And D&D apparently, like, and RPGs in general, especially if played with like a family, are a great, great way to teach you know, moral lessons, lessons about the world, explore hard issues in a controlled manner and structured way. Yeah, and it, there's a lot more agency handed over to players of yeah. you know imagination-based role-playing games than than there would be in video games or, or other formats. Uh, you know, you can lecture at a kid uh, to to no end, um, but uh, role-playing like does place them in positions where they can learn things kind of firsthand. Uh, and you know, kids learn through things like imagination and play all of the time. <laughs> Uh, and role-playing games provide a really great structured environment to help an adult stand, understand that world and, and, and navigate it uh, more effectively, which is really cool. And, and express your emotions, too, mm-hmm. right, in, in a more constructive way. Um, as for me, one of the reasons that IGM is I'm just really compelled by uh, the mechanics of narrative um, and sort of you know how you make sense of tropes and uh, structures that sort of drive narratives in other areas, like in a novel or or a television show or a movie. Um, I really like uh, using game mechanics to see, you know, how can we provoke uh, different decisions uh, that, you know, make a coherent story? Uh, How do I collaborate with the other people around the table to make a story that sort of reflects our ideas and passions as a group? and the, the GMing role like definitely gives you the responsibility of figuring out a way to to help that collaboration uh, work. Um, every player at the table is a collaborator. Every player at the table bears some responsibility to work with everyone else. Um, but because the GM 
plays you know a flexible role that like can appear through many characters can appear through events in the world itself uh, the gm has more flexibility to tie people together and to get people to cooperate and collaborate and to build this narrative together um so i i, I just like the tools that that role has to make that happen Bianca? Oh, oh my gosh. Everybody really summed <laughs> up like, everything <laughs> I wanted really to say. Um, so like, yes to all of the above. Um, I, I GM because I enjoy creating universes. I like, I love teamwork. Um, I genuinely play RPGs just to like have people work with me and we work with them. Um, it's a really fun, it's a fun aspect. And as a GM, you get to, uh, I don't play a lot of like pre-existing modules because I really enjoy working with my players and creating worlds together because that makes you want to participate in this universe. And that is just an aspect that like is so near and dear to my heart. Like growing up, I played a lot of video games. And it's a very controlled environment. And I just wished when I was younger that I could explore a lot of these things. And then now that I'm into RPGs, I realize like there are ways to do this. Um, it's just a matter of working with the right people. And it's so much fun. Okay, so so now we're gonna, we, we've defined, okay, so for us, what is a GM and why do we GM? And it's starting to touch on topics of, and as you can tell, we all love collaborative storytelling. Um, so, but one of the main responses I sometimes get, particularly, um, maybe not more in the story-based games, um, but particularly more, you know, traditionally traditional games like D&D or Pathfinder and things like that, um, you, you get a lot of response of saying, well, but players don't respond. They want me to describe things or they, 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 don't, they don't give me anything. So, so my, my next question is, what are some ways um, you use to encourage that participation and that collaboration at the table? And what are some cues that you use? So before we dive into that, I, I think it's important to recognize that one of the traditional structures uh, of the GM and player, like PC relationship is that there's a division of control and what people have agency over at the table. Like, if you have a player character at the table, you have complete control and agency over what your character does in the world. Nobody's telling you what your PC, you know, who, who your PC attacks, what they say. Nobody's telling you how they feel um, because you have complete autonomy in that space. Uh, but the GM is supposed to control everything that is not a PC. Um, and that's the traditional structure. Uh, and that's how, you know, D&D presented it and a lot of the RPGs that splintered off from that presented it. And there are definitely games that call that into question and structurally change that explicitly within the rules. Mm -hmm. um, but if you were playing a traditional game, as the GM, you can always decide when you want to delegate out uh, parts of your role that are considered traditional. If there's a player at the table who you feel has like a lot more experience with the rules than you, you can always you know, bow to their knowledge in a complicated rule situation. If there is a part of the world that you really want to see one of your players take an active role in creating, you can always ask them to offer their idea in, in place of your own. So one, what I believe we're talking about here is techniques to help you set up delegating that creativity, mm -hmm. meeting out parts of that role, uh, giving players permission to participate, 
and actually encouraging them to do that. Right. Yeah. Um, and and I do want to add, um, particularly like in more traditional that tr traditional format, um, like if we're going to talk about D and D and like fifth edition. There are a lot of really cool variant rules that they present, um, and and one that I use and I love it. It's on page two sixty nine of the Players <laughs> Dungeon Master's Guide, um, and it's the plot point variable. Um, and what that does is there's there's different versions of the plot point variable um, variant rule. But the one that I use is everyone at the table for each session has one plot point that they can use. And that means that they can make something in the world happen whenever they want. So a person who can help them out shows up. Or they really need a horse? Well, guess what? There's a horse. And they, they tell me why there's a horse and, and how that horse got there. And however, <laughs> yeah, it's a Noah guy. Um, so that thing happens. However, the player to the right adds a complication. So yeah, you get your thing, but now the player on your right adds something that's maybe not so great about that thing. So yesterday in a game I ran, uh, someone needed a horse to get somewhere quickly because they had a, a small time frame in which they had to do something in. So yeah, they got the horse, but the player on the right said, yeah, but it's a really slow nag. So yeah, so like things like that happened, um, and it just adds that little bit of extra um, agency to players, um, and it's a tool that's within the rule book already um, that you can use to, to <coughs> add that extra little bit of collaborative storytelling from everyone. So you yourself as a GM don't have to um, for me, I'm kind of lazy. Like when I GM, I, I like to have, I often just go into a game with three to five sentences and that's it. I mean, not for every game. There's certain times where I need to have more. Uh, but I really like to hand things off to my players. Um, if a player rolls really well, I'm like, well, what does that look like? So Bianca and Tracy, I, I'm kind of curious. Uh, you say that like you, you Definitely GM, but have not done it as much. Mm -hmm. uh, I kind of feel like that perspective allows you to uh, take more liberties with the role. Like, yeah. what, do, what do you do in these situations? Uh, as a GM or as a player? As a, as a GM. Like, what, like ha have, have you had much experience, like, delegating out and changing your creativity? Yes. Um, so, Tracy, I'm going to bounce this off of you. So, you walk into a town. Um, it's pouring rain. Where do you head first? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> so and you have players where it gets complicated. So I'm like, okay, so you see a tavern and then you see an inn. What color is the inn? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just doing this because I've had this happen at tables before. And then it, it puts the pressure on me to keep going. I'm like, okay, well, the inn, it's made in mahogany, um, but it's dark outside, so you can't quite tell. Um, you're standing right in front of both buildings. Where would you like to go? I'll go to the tavern and have a drink. Okay, what are you drinking? Wine. At the a finest wine. <laughs> and then you find things that the players latch onto and you have to take that and expand upon it because they found what they're comfortable with. But it's, you, you dig. You dig and you dig sometimes until you can mm. get what your player can work with. Um, and it's not always easy. But asking many questions to describe a scene, to create um, part of the universe, I think, is a great tool to utilize. 
Also for me, I didn't start GMing until after I was playing with Victoria, so I very often steal her line of what does that look like and use that at my table. That is absolutely something that I use very often at my table. Um, a couple of things, it, it does depend a little bit also whether you have a campaign or a one-shot. A campaign, it's a little bit easier to get people involved because you know your, your players' characters' backstories. So you can really pull from their backstories and their histories to get them involved. I think that's one great way to get some good one-on-one -on -one time going with your players. One-shots are a lot trickier because you don't really have that to work with. So that's when I'll more lean on the what does that look like to get my players involved. Especially, you know, when I started GMing, I was playing a lot with some friends at home who had never really played. And I could tell some of them were a little bit nervous. So I really used that line to bring them in since we were kind of just doing some one-shots, some really loose sort of loosely structured fun things because if you have a campaign then you can like I said you can really pull from their backstory you can also get a better idea of what your players are looking for if you have a campaign because I think that's why it's really important to have something like a session zero where you can sit down discuss your expectations with your players and that way make sure that they're comfortable enough they'll be more comfortable to collaborate with you if they're doing something that they enjoy if they're very combat-based, then you can get them more involved in combat. If they do want to just go and go around town and go explore town and check out all the shops, and then you can incorporate that more, and that'll get them more excited, more interested to get involved in the game with you. Does um, anybody yeah. else want to say anything? Okay. Uh, one of the things that I think needs to be mentioned is that you, as a GM, need to be comfortable with dead air. And I know, like, mm -hmm. as podcasters, it's a little bit different, but you can edit that. <laughs> But if you're playing at home, and as somebody who often games with, with people who are on the spectrum, um, we need to realize that people interact with narrative differently. Asking people what they see, what they think, who they know, might be difficult for people who might need time to think about what they're doing. I have a client, um, and uh, when, we, when we game, they often will write notes to use in the next session. So we're always working a session ahead, even though the narrative is taking place one session behind. Okay. Now, uh, you, Tracy, you said you know about comfort. People need to be comfortable, and one of the things that you have to do is you said ah, you have to set expectations. A lot of people, when they're gaming, and I game with a lot of kids for the first time, right? And one of the things that you know kids and adults who have never played an RPG before think is that they don't know what is right to say. They think that there is a right thing to say. They mm -hmm. think that there is a wrong thing to do. And setting the expectation that there is no right or wrong thing to do in the game because you are in control of your story really helps people open up. And, and that's something that, that like kids and adults in yeah. their everyday life are used to having right and wrong things to say. Yeah. So I, I want to just add to that, don't correct them. Exactly. So to, they're, they're not because if you're correcting them, you're like, no, no, that's not how I picture it then it closes them off, mm -hmm. and I think, and and especially it. in these situations. Yeah. Uh, Another thing is that, like, like I said, some people might not want to actually speak out and say something. Mm -hmm. They might want to write something to you, text something to you. Right? Some people might be afraid of what other people at the table think. One of the things I like to do, and I only sadly started doing this recently, um, was actually getting players to write uh, Bane and Boons. So I get them to write things on cue cards. What is something cool? What is something bad that you want to happen to the group? Put them all in a bowl. And when we're going through, uh, right? It's cool. Right? When we're going, like maybe we're traveling from city to city, that could be boring in D&D. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, games like Dungeon World do travel really well with the Undertake a Perilous Journey move, um, which I like to incorporate into D&D. But when they're traveling from town to town, I'm like, you know what, this is a good opportunity to draw from the bowl. You pull something out. And you see that smile on the player's face when they see, oh, my thing's been pulled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they know what's coming. And it could take your adventure into like a really silly direction, because they could write like, you know, it could be a super dark gothic campaign, and, like, and then you get attacked by like bright neon orange pudding monsters. Uh, let's roll with it, because this is how you find out what the players want. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so th- this sort of relates to a concept uh, from improv. Um, a lot of people are familiar with, with yes and as a concept, which I think is uh, a pretty, uh, it's one of the most often misinterpreted concepts in improv, uh, which makes it sort of like complex territory. I, I think much better advice uh, to come from improv is make choices important. Uh, which, like, yes and operates on the principle that if you are given an idea by somebody else, uh, you want to affirm that idea and build on it. Um, Make choices important is a more specific directive. It is assume that the things that your partners at the table, your fellow players, bring you are intentional choices on their part. That's something that they want to bring into the game. Uh, You take that information and then you add your own creativity to make it an important thing in the world. Uh, That kind of support makes people feel good. Like Daniel was saying, you know, somebody seeing their idea pulled out of a bowl is exciting because they're getting to see themselves have an impact on the game. It's, It's really, really cool and fun to see your ideas incorporated. To see somebody take one of your ideas and add something to it that makes it really significant to the thing that you're all doing is magic. Like that's why people do improv and pay far too much money for classes. Uh, That's why people like me end up with gigantic shelves full of different role playing games that maybe we'll never even play. Because the feeling of collaborating with a group of people and, and the feeling of, of not just seeing an idea that you're interested in, uh, that, that you like because you, know, you came up with it, uh, but, but seeing that idea become something more significant than even you imagined when you proposed it is wonderful. Uh, so that, that's like the basic cornerstone of, of this type of collaboration. And I, I think everybody else uh, here has done a really good job of, of pointing out that the way you make people understand that that their ideas are supported and and accepted is by kind of creating uh, the feeling of expertise in your group. Like uh, to be comfortable, they need to be giving you their information, their ideas in a format that that makes them feel like confident in what they're doing. And, you know, we talked a lot about session zero, uh, alluding to uh, these collaborative world building spaces. When you invite players in uh, to like say, well, you know, I'm part of the Thieves Guild and you're like, okay, well, let's define the Thieves Guild and help you build a bit of that world. When you finally go to the Thieves Guild, the player understands that space and they can make assumptions about that space. And, and lead in different directions. Uh, that's because they feel they have agency over it. Uh, if a player enters a town and doesn't know what to do, partially it's because, well, I've never been to this town. I don't know what's in this town. I don't want to say the wrong thing. If they helped invent the Thieves Guild, then 
they do know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so we, we've talked about cues, we've talked about ways to incorporate player ideas and to affirm them and to build their confidence and make them feel like their choices and their, their ideas have weight and matter. Um, so let's, let's get into like a little bit of nitty and gritty. So, so what are some ways that you use structure and format? Um, because as, as a GM, you are using structure and you are using format and the game in and of itself is a structure and format that you use. It's a rule set that you're using. Um, and how do you use that? And how do you design your adventures and your sessions to incorporate player ideas while still maintaining your manager role? I, um, I'm running a game right now and I'm doing something very similar to what Daniel explained. Um, for our session zero, what I did was I grabbed a piece of paper and I asked all of my players, what do you want to see in this campaign? Um, some people wrote combat, um, some people wrote fish. It was really just <laughs> up to the players. Um, it didn't have to be related to their character at all. It's just like, what would you like to get out of this? Um, and I think I took all of that information and I've much like the way James explained it, I've been able to incorporate it into the world so the players can experience something that they wanted out of the game. I don't know if I would necessarily call it something structured, um, but to a degree it absolutely is and it allows, um, I guess, a little bit of linear movement uh, as a GM to control what the players are going to experience. I would say that's absolutely structure that mm -hmm. you've brought to it. Okay. Because most people just sit down and hope that people give them ideas. You're like, no, please give me the ideas, though. Write them down. And I will put them into something that everyone will like. Yeah. Yes, yes. That is 100% structure. Okay. Because other than that, I didn't think, like, what is structure? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, the GM creates the skeleton. The players literally put the organs and the muscle and the skin and the hair mm -hmm. onto it. I guess what we're saying is players are meat. Yep. <laughs> That, that make everybody very comfortable, feel good? Yeah. To be meat? <laughs> Love it. I also think as a GM, sometimes you simply have to accept that your players are going to take your skeleton and throw it right out the window. Yeah. Like, I think that there absolutely is structure. And I absolutely think that, you know, you, you have your rule set. You work within it to whatever, you know, works for you. Sometimes you can use it very closely. Sometimes you can use it a little bit loosely. That depends on your style as a GM. But also sometimes the players are going to do something that is going to surprise the heck out of you. And you might be like, okay, you know what? This is better. We're just going to, you might just improv and roll with it and take your five pages of notes and chuck it right over your shoulder and out the window. Um, but I think if that happens, the thing is that because you're still telling the story together, you still have to give your players that room to do to give you those ideas as you're going sometimes the players are just going to think of something that's honestly better than what you had written down on paper so if that's the case you just kind of roll into a ball throw it over your shoulder and run with what the players are doing because i mean as a player you're improving too so as a gm you can also improv it doesn't have to be a fully structured thing either and, and it's important to recognize that it's not them exactly throwing out the skeleton. It, yeah. In a lot of cases, it's you think the most important part of your story is going to be the spine and the ribs, and they've gone. Actually, the knuckle bones mm -hmm. are great. Yeah, that's a better. And way we're going to gonna focus on that. Uh, yeah, it's just going to be a, like a hand. 
Yeah. <laughs> and everybody loves it. So yeah. the thing that's leading games in different directions, that's enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. So so if your players are showing enthusiasm, that means you've done something right. It just isn't the thing that you wrote five pages of notes about, uh, which you know might make you feel like, oh no, I'm losing my expertise. I, I created this foundation that gave me my expertise and, and that let me feel like, oh, I'm confident to make decisions about the story. Uh, so I like it's I, I think Tracy's framed it perfectly. It's just you've got to be willing to follow those plot threads and uh, take in those ideas that people are excited about, make those knuckle bones seem as important as a rib cage. Yeah. Um, I mean like this isn't to say not to prep. Not yes. To prep. Now uh, there was like a while ago there was there were some people who were like hating on people who prep oh gosh, and then the yeah. people who were prepping mm-hmm. were like hating on people who don't prep and then I chimed in on Twitter and kind of went on an angry rant and was like look there's a space for prep there's a space for no prep one of the things that I like to do is like like Victoria you said you know I write down like three sentences of what I want to happen mm-hmm. I like to write down like three locations or three NPCs or, or three like plot threads and I can insert them into the game whenever I want because I don't know when they're going to be in there, yeah. but I know that I want to put them in there. The players don't know that the castle, if, if there's a forest and you say, okay, well, at the other side of this forest, there is a castle. And the players are like, I don't want to go in the forest. I go back across the river and I sit on the, I sit on the beach. Well, <laughs> if, if you, and I, and I decide to start fishing. Mm-hmm. That sounds awesome. Let's do that. You start fishing. Fish combat. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> right? Um, and you're like, well, I have this idea for the castle. Oh. Shit, like this castle's not going to appear then because it's fixed on the other side of the forest. Yeah. But you have a castle still, and you haven't made a decision where it's going to be. And they're fishing, and they're catching fish, and they see a leaf floating along the river, and there's a tiny little castle mm-hmm. on the leaf. And your castle's still in the story, just in a different form. Yeah. And your prep is still prep. Um, yes, yeah, so like moving things around, like figuring out a way to incorporate your ideas into the things that they're excited about, like that's flexibility and that's a way to still honor the prep that you're doing. Uh, getting back to like other specific mechanics that, that I use, um, it's turning something general into something specific. Uh, if you ask someone, what, what does this bar look like that is a wild, like there, there's so many different directions that people could go. So the more specific you can make that question, the more empowered someone feels that they have to answer that. So like if we're, we're using Daniel's castle, uh, rather than asking like, what does this tiny castle look like? Uh, you, you could say, this is an intimidating Gothic structure in miniature. What, what do you see in the stained glass windows? Um, that like focuses things on like, okay, so I'm not, responsible for defining the entire architecture of this structure and I'm not responsible for figuring out what an unspecified castle looks like. I have a gothic intimidating castle and I'm just figuring out the stained glass windows. So when I put in you know, depictions of werewolves and vampires, uh, it's not that big a leap. Uh, and you can take those little details uh, and other player and like have players going like, okay, because we've got werewolves and vampires in the windows, uh, you know, what do the door knockers look like? What do the what do the tiny bells sound like as they're ringing? Um, and you know, finally, what what does the rumbling sound of the earth uh, make you feel when the castle grows to be full size in front of your eyes? Can you imagine hearing like tiny little gothic bells? Like, I would love it. <laughs> so, I was on my phone because yeah. I was like. 
this should totally be something we play together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it down. Oh, um, gosh. I, I was thinking you would catch the castle. As yeah, you catch the castle. And it, it yeah. comes up, and maybe the castle is actually a tiny little mimic, and there's a larger mimic Aww. castle, and it's spawning other little castles, and every single building in the realm is a mimic. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> Don't want to live yeah. in that world. <laughs> How many people are just extensions of mimics? Oh, exactly. Yes. Or you exactly. Yeah, can't trust anybody. Oh, right? Can't trust any architect. Anything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but, but like, it's easy to come up with specifics. It's a lot harder to come up with general things. Like, if I asked you to just tell a story right now, some of you might be able to just bust one out and that would be rad. Uh, but it's a lot easier to tell a story if we go, okay, you have this character and they have these abilities and we're going to play D&D. Because it's providing specifics. It, it, it's giving you hooks to get into things. Uh, so if you frame your questions around specifics, it will be easier to pry ideas out of uh, people who are feeling shy or unconfident about their contributions. Uh, I, I use um, more of design to, to kind of keep things going. Um, I always use a three-act structure. And so I always have, like, I set the scene in my first act. This is, this is the scene. And then I see what the players do. Um, and then that's act, that's act one. Act two is, okay, this other one thing is just going to happen or someone's going to talk to them or, or there's just this one general thing that's going to occur. And then act three is the resolution of, of those two acts. Act one, set the scene. Two is the thing. Act three is the resolution. And I use that, that format because it, I still then can kind of control some things, but it allows the, the players to do whatever they want within those three acts. And then I use that kind of modular design of I move whatever I need to be wherever, wherever the players go um, and, and to coincide with whatever the players are doing. And then I use that, that three-act structure for each session but I also use it for the overarching campaign as well. So the, the campaign has like a full story arc because this way I still kind of know where it's going, but I can move it around to fit what the players are doing. Yeah, I would say when it comes to doing something like a long-term campaign, I usually have a general idea of the overarching, a very, very vague idea of the overarching story that I want to tell. But when it comes to prep, I really prep only session by session, just because you never know. You never know what the players are gonna do. You never know what next session's gonna look like. You don't even know if you're gonna hit everything that you have planned in this session, or if they're going to find, oh, I don't know, an arcade with a combat simulator and decide that they're gonna spend an hour in the combat simulator and then your session's over. Um, so I, I like to look at the long term very generally and then keep a loose structure for the specific sessions. Yeah. Um, that's. So why I really only sometimes have three sentences is because I prep right before we play um, and I base my prep on what they did the last session. And I follow what the players are doing. I see what they're doing, I'm like, okay. And then after like about two sessions of kind of just a few bits of prep, that third session, because three-act structure, I do everything in threes, that third session is going to be the the resolution of the setup that they have provided me, and then that is going to be my more prep, that I might have 10 pages of notes for that 
that one session because now it's the resolution. We left off in the last session with them about to go do the thing. And I know that I'm not going to waste my prep at that point <laughs> because I know they're about to go do the thing. Um, so that's how I kind of do things so that it's just easier for me. I think it also depends a little bit on your on your table and your players. That can be hard to gauge if you're doing something like you're running a game at a convention because you don't know what kind of players that you're going to get. But if you're at a table with people that you've played with a lot, I think it's a little bit easier to approach it with, like Victoria said, like a couple sentences. Because with us as the broadswords, she knows that we could go on absolutely wild tangents in any direction, really. So there's no point making it super structured. But if it's somebody, if you're playing with maybe new players who are a little bit less comfortable, you might have a little bit more structure just to, you know, it depends on your players and your players' expectations, kind of what we went back yeah, on context before. is important. Yeah, absolutely. Have, have any of you ever read The, the Tome of Adventure Design? <laughs> what do you mean? No, no. It's a book by Matthew Finch. It's like 300 pages long. It's, it's like, a, it's very much an OSR document, um, but The Tome of Adventure Design is a really good book. Uh, or really a lot of the OSR material are really good for <coughs> providing players with resources in which they can contribute to the narrative. Mm -hmm. So the Tome of Adventure Design is basically like a book full of like tables that you can roll and design your own adventures. But if we're trying to encourage people to say, what does the building look like? And your player has never seen like a half timber structure before, they're like, oh, I don't know. Take the book, see what terminology you'd like to use and throw into the narrative or somebody's a little bit more reserved at the table, give them a, a book like that, or any of the, the those old school like adventure design books, and just look for terms, look things up, see what you want to add, right? Or even picture books for kids. Like if you have a book on like medieval villages, mm -hmm. well, what do you want to add to it? And that's, that's taking something general <laughs> and again, making it specific by mm -hmm. offering people, well, these are different options for, for things that you can consider. These are way things looked. It, it's all information to ground someone in, in the reality of what you're doing. Okay, well, I think maybe questions. Does anyone have any questions, particular things? Yes, Meg. So a lot of you are on podcasts and do this GM thing on How podcasts. Dare you. How has listening to yourself run games changed the way you approach it? Or has it? It's made me significantly more self-conscious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm very used to the sound of my voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially as the person who edits those. Yep, that's me. <laughs> um, I talk less now. Um, I found at the beginning when I first started there was a lot of exposition and it made me realize when I would re-listen to that I was like man that's boring um, like people don't want to sit through that I'm bored and I'm saying it so I, I talk less I, I let the players talk more and I let them play out scenes and I just sit back and watch and listen because I pick up what they're saying and what they're doing and I take a lot of notes and I bring those into the game. Um, it's, it's made me more aware of the audience structure of a role-playing game. Um, <clears throat> if you think about role-playing games, like they are storytelling, they are collaborative storytelling and everyone involved with the story and creating it is also the audience for that same story. 
Um, as like the specific words that you use, the, the, the way that you speak, everything that you put into a game is part of that game experience. Just like you know, the sets that you use on a TV show or the costumes or the way actors deliver their lines are, are part of that narrative experience. Uh, so you know, hearing yourself on a podcast and, and the way uh, you give information to people, like it, it helps you Form in your mind uh, what the audience for that game, your fellow players, or you know, in the case of actual play, your your audience listening, uh, what their experience of your ideas is. Um, and for me, that that's that's helped me frame the way I present material to people. Like, I think Victoria, you know, pointing out that exposition uh, being one way to, to present things, like like going on a long monologue, like, let me explain you the entire 1,200-year history of my campaign setting, uh, is is different from going, okay, there is, there's this temple in front of you, and you go inside, and as they move through that temple, they see pictograms, you know, depicting part of the history of this setting, and they see, like, things from the past of this world and whatnot, and they receive their information through narrative as opposed through exposition, mm -hmm. uh, it, like, it, it teaches you that like, okay, uh, presenting all of that material that I came up with as a lecture feels like homework, and presenting that material through narrative adventure feels like a fun, exciting adventure. Uh, so it, it made me kind of reframe how I think about the way people distribute and receive information at the table. Yeah, present that information as players interact with it. Yep. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, also producing an actual play or even just doing a podcast is re really teaches you how to like, respect that give and take between the players and the mm -hmm. GM. Like, as players, you know, it, it's also important that you, like, the GM has maybe prepared or not prepared something for this recording session. It's like, let's sit back and follow what they want to do, but also take the lead when we think it's time. There's a give and take. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I, that hasn't been mentioned yet, but I think that's very important. Yeah, it, there, there is an amount of player buy-in um, yeah. and, and trust that, okay, the, the GM um, has something for us, so let, let's trust it and let's go with it, um, but also let's have some fun and do our stuff as well. Um, if I can jump with a little bit of a different perspective, because I've never GM'd on a podcast, but I have on a stream. Um, the first time that I actually GM'd was uh, playing a game that I had never played before uh, on stream, never GMing before, and it was absolutely terrifying. Um, <laughs> but just going off of what Victoria said, there's definitely players having trust in the GM, but as the GM, especially in a situation like that, I had to trust in my players, too, mm -hmm. that they would work with me and provide with me some of that exposition on stream so that we could fill the amount of time that we had and um, and just help me build the world so that it's not fully dependent on me. And so I think it's important that it's, it, trust goes both ways when it comes to GMs and players. I saw some other hands sneaking their way up. So I am running a Blades in the Dark game with a bunch of players who, apart from one of them, had only ever played D&D and Pathfinder before. Mm. Um, and one of the big themes I've been struggling with in this game is that like three of my players are just combat players. Like They just want to punch stuff and be murder hobos. 
Um, <laughs> and the other three are like very story game oriented. They really want to like explore and do world building and you know do all that good stuff. And um, I I want to know like what your perspectives are on making on sort of unifying a party that has such a disparity within it and sort of making making a fun story for players with such diverse needs. I have an idea. Um, this is a, revolves around doing something I call creating an objective. Um, in when, when everybody sits down at your table to play your game, all of them have an objective for the game, like the fun that they want to get out of it, and they have an idea of what that game is going to do for them. And right now, a lot of that is unspoken. Like, you've come to understand that there are three players that really get jized about story gaming and, and world creation and stuff like that, and three players who really dig fighting and combat. Uh, but they haven't communicated that explicitly to everyone else. Um, sitting, sitting down, and it's sort of like a session zero thing, but a very meta-textual session zero thing where you go, hey, you know, I, I, I've been having a lot of fun with this game, um, and I like what people are bringing to the table, but I want to know what you've had fun with so far so that we can put that into the open. And maybe the combat player goes, oh, I thought, I thought we were just figuring out what the other gangs looked like as work. Like, I, I, I just wanted to go punch them. I didn't know that that was fun for you. Uh, I can kind of get into that. Like, it, once, once you've established an objective as a group of like, this is what we're expecting out of the setting. This is what we're excited about out of the setting. This is what I want to do vis-a-vis -vis combat. This is what I didn't even know was part of the game, really, because I've been playing games that that wasn't an important aspect of. So I, I think a kind of metatextual conversation about let's establish our objectives and like, like treat them like when we come to session, this is what we're trying to produce together because it lets everyone in on the thing that's right now just your responsibility because you're the only one thinking about it. One of the things that we did for our Mask actual play because I'm going to send you the new episode next I'm week. I'm so freaking excited. Um, one of the things that we did for the actual play is we actually tried to keep all of the GM player conversations in the in the audio so you, you hear us argue and you hear us talk about safety tools but at the end of every episode you hear us talk about roses, thorns, and wishes. Mm. Are you all familiar with that? Okay. So at the end of every session what we did was we said we each of us had a chance we went in a circle including the GM and we said one thing that we really liked about the actual play, what happened, what, what was an event that we liked, what was something somebody did. And we all were like, I really like all of you. And we were like, be more specific. Um, <laughs> um, and then we, after that, we went into something that we didn't like. Uh, so for me, uh, I think it was really important that we do that on air so that people, that kind of normalizes it for our listeners. So one of the things that happened was um, Agatha, who's jamming it, it, was doing a really good job of giving everybody spotlight. But this is a spoiler. Um, left um, my left my what I was doing in a scene on a cliffhanger to go do another thing. I was totally okay with it, and I was like sitting there waiting to get back to that moment because my character has a crush on Mars character, um, and we had this moment where it was kind of being revealed, and then when we went back to the spotlight on me, we didn't resolve that. Oh no! And because we got so excited about something else that happened, so I brought that up. And like obviously in a very respectful way, and we're like, okay, let's get this next time. And so after everybody does their roses and thorns, then we do wishes. What do you want to see happen in the next session? 
right? So you get something you liked, something you didn't like, and something you want to do. And then if you're doing a multi-session campaign, you can incorporate all of those things. And it can also be a very good tool for seeing what everybody else at the table likes. So if you're the combat person, like you said, and you're like, oh, I didn't even know I could do that. Mm -hmm. Well, now, you, now you've just found out. Uh, a fun thing I like to do, uh, I do deal with a lot of players who you've got your combat focused and you've got your roleplay focused. Um, I humanize a lot of my villains. Um, they can be, it can be like the lowliest of goblins, but they still have dreams and motivations and aspirations. So while you have your combat folks that are fighting this goblin, the goblin's providing dialogue explaining like why they had to resort to a life of murder. Um, <laughs> and perhaps like the ones who are more focused on roleplay can get into that and want to find a solution that is maybe not as violent. Um, and that puts a little bit of moral pressure on the more combat focused one and that creates hopefully cohesion, maybe not. Very Shakespearean, I like this <laughs> goblin doing his sides. I'm doing this for my lover. <laughs> it's very important. Yeah, we, she, she, she even does that as a player. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I gave them a giant to fight and suddenly she is befriending the giant. Oh, yeah. His name is now George. <laughs> They're having a grand old time until the wizard fireballs them. Um, Ready but, to cry. Yeah. Like, yeah. It was so hard for I thought you were going to say, and then the party got one member larger. They were going to, um, but then the wizard got fire happy. Mm -hmm. um, also, then, the bard tickled him. Yeah, and the bard tickled him. <laughs> Everybody handles every situation differently, but you give them a chance to express what they want to accomplish differently. All right, we got we got five minutes. Five minutes. No, we're rolling that. Oh, oh yeah, nailed it. <laughs> where where can you find everybody on the internet? Yes. Oh, you can find the broadswords at the broadswords on any social media, uh, or myself at Mimi Merlot on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Tracy Sore on Twitter. I am at Bianca Zelda. I'm at OneShotRPG, and you can find the OneShot Podcast Network over at OneShotPodcast.com. That's where you can find the Broadswords and Asians Represent and OneShot and so many other lovely shows. You can find me on Twitter at Daniel H. Kwan and learn about my therapeutic and educational and gaming work at DanielHKwan.com. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much.